Hello and welcome to Nutrition 411, the podcast, a special series led by registered dietitian and nutritionist Lisa Jones. The views of the speakers are their own and do not reflect the views of their respective institutions. Hello and welcome to Nutrition 411, the podcast where we communicate the information you need to know now about the science, psychology, and strategies behind the practice of dietetics. I am Lisa Jones, and excited to have two fantastic guests joining me today, Anna Marie Rodriguez and Abby Gelman. Today, we will be discussing plant-based nutrition in a world of opportunities. First, I will start by introducing Anna Marie. Anna Marie has worked as a renal dietitian for almost 25 years in a variety of settings from clinical to pharmaceutical, including clinical, sales, education, and renal medical affairs. She is on the Academy's Quality Management Committee, the State Coordinator for Vegetarian Nutrition Dietetic Practice Group for several states, a board member of the Plant-Based Prevention of Disease Organization, the Vegetarian DPG Chair-Elect, and the Wisconsin and Southeast Region Representative-Elect. Welcome, Anna Marie. Thank you. So glad to be here. Yay. Next, I will introduce (laughs) Abby. (laughs) Chef Abby Gelman is a spokesperson, recipe, and product developer, author, and educator. She creates, produces, and hosts cooking and nutrition videos and works with a wide variety of food companies, brands, commodity boards, food service operators, health professionals, and private clients. Welcome, Abby. Thank you. (laughs) So glad that you're both here. First, I want to start with Anna Marie, if you can just give a little background about your expertise. My background has been a a severe deep dive in CKD and and ESKD, which is chronic kidney disease and end-stage kidney disease. And because of that, I've had a wide variety of roles that range from clinical to educator, sales, medical affairs, and I've been acclimated to every aspect of patient care surrounding these specific roles in the care of CKD patients. Currently, though, my focus is on the prevention of chronic disease in general, but namely on CKD. It is my passion, and I want to focus on this through nutrition. And the main component is delaying the progression of CKD to ESKD. I am on a mission. And as I'm a plant-based dietitian, my degree plan is on health and wellness. My focus is on a more holistic approach. And this is where food plays a vital role. I've also worked with hospice, wound care, diabetes, and weight management. So I kind of wear a lot of different hats, which makes my life very exciting. Very excited. And I love that you are on a mission. Missions are amazing. (laughs) And I like your mission. It's a good one. So I will go over to Abby. If you want to tell us about your expertise and background, although the chef kind of gives it away a little bit. (laughs) (laughs) So the short version is that I went to culinary school about 20 years ago and I worked in corporate America for a really long time, consulting and some other things. Eventually I left corporate America and left restaurants to get my nutrition degree. And that's when I learned that most dietitians don't cook, which was shocking to me at the time. Fast forward to now where I, you know, 
have a culinary degree, worked in restaurants, did all those things. Plus now I'm a dietitian. So I've spent the last 10 plus years doing what I call culinary nutrition. So a lot of the work I do now is teaching health professionals, um, mostly dietitians, but also diet techs and physicians and any health professional I can get in front of how to cook, how to get that base of culinary skills that we need, and then also culinary nutrition for our clients and our patients. So disease states like diabetes and heart disease or nutrition issues like aging and that kind of thing. So I spent a lot of time doing cooking demos, speaking and presentations, and I have a online course to get you culinary nutrition certified and, and a bunch of other things, and then do some work with consumers and such as well. Thank you, Abby. That's fantastic. Took our course over the summer and highly recommend it. I am your target market. I'm the dietitian that's not cooking and (laughs) that's fine. And you get 53 CEUs if you take the basic (laughs) and advanced. Oh my gosh. Program. I would love to take this course. Come come over. Sorry, interrupted. No, go to culinarynutritionstudio.com. I'm sure that it'll be in the show notes. (laughs) We'll put it in the show notes. (laughs) But you're filling a gap that is much needed. So thank you, Abby. Thanks. All right, so let's begin. I'm going to ask you a couple questions and let our audience know. The first one is, how does following a plant-based diet impact your health? Anne-Marie, do you want to start with that one? Yeah, sure. I want to mention about Abby's response. I'm so sorry. One of the first things my grandma said to me when I was going to school to become a dietitian, she said, please be sure to know how to cook. (laughs) So I kind of took that with heart. And I love cooking since I was a child. So it was easy for me. But following a plant-based diet affects health in so many different ways. Plant-based nutrition improves the gut microbiome, making it healthier overall. Nutrients are absorbed much more efficiently. Immunity is enhanced. Inflammation is reduced. Plant-based nutrition, it's high in fiber. Uh, That's just the natural fact of plants. And it's beneficial in lowering cholesterol, stabilizing blood sugar, reducing intake from protein also from animal sources by increasing plant-based eating um, reduces gut toxins such as picrisal sulfate and doxyl sulfate, TMAO, which is trimethylene and oxide, which is known to favor the growth of proteolytic bacteria in the gut microbiome. And historically, we've thought of this in regards to cardiovascular disease, but now we know it's also I'm very, very heavily regarded with CKD. These toxins are known as key uremic toxins. And interestingly now, TMAO is also known simply as a renal toxin. Plant-based nutrition lowers BMI, blood pressure, blood sugar control, favors lipid management. And we identify the positive effects with CKD because plant-based nutrition is effective because of the less acidity of it. It favors a more alkaline approach. And we know that metabolic acidosis is not only a contributor to kidney disease, but it's a consequence of kidney disease. So this is a strong tactic in reducing the progression of CKD. So plant-based nutrition has really come a long way. Um, Historically, the CKD diet has always been adverse to using fruits and vegetables, where now it is just now starting to be embraced because we now recognize the fact that this is kidney saving. Thank you, Anna-Marie. You know what I love about what you just said? It's like the beginning part when you were talking about the TMAO was more the questions that dietitians want to know. So they want to know the why behind it. But if you're 
flipping it to think about what do our patients and clients want to know? And they really want to know the benefits. And that's what you just so nicely explained. Mm -hmm. So thank you for that. You're welcome. Abby, how about your take? <laughs> it's, I mean, she, she touched on a lot of the, you know, obviously it decreases our risk of a variety of diseases, helps with cognition and mental health and is, you know, fruits and veggies are an antidepressant essentially. So there's not a, a ton I can add from a clinical point of view. Like we know that whole, whole foods in the form of plants are helpful for a myriad of reasons. But the thing that goes in my brain also because of the chef side is you can eat more. So you can eat a lot of vegetables and a lot of fruit and a lot like you can eat more plants versus, you know, a serving of beans is a much more quantity, like a higher quantity of food than a serving of beef. So if you are someone who likes quantity of food like me, you can have a lot of veggies, just pile them on there. So that's a plant based option. That is a benefit, I think. Yeah, that's definitely a benefit. That's terrific that you're saying that because a lot of people think, oh, I'm put on a diet or put on a restriction and they hear the word restrict. They think I have to eat less when really you're telling them, no, you don't, you eat have more. to eat more. Yeah. So you probably just made so many people's day when they get to listen to this. So thank <laughs> you. <laughs> My favorite part, which is the next question is what are some common misconceptions about plant-based eating? Because it's in the media so much, we hear all these different things. So let's go to Abby for a second for this question first. Okay. So for me, I have like screaming in my face is it is not vegan, right? So, so many people think that if you're plant-based, that means you are vegan. And for me and what I tell people and what I generally think the actual definition is that it's just a majority of plants. So maybe half of your meals are always, maybe 50% of your diet is plants or 95% or somewhere in between. But that if a majority is plants, then that to me is plant-based. So my plate might have 25% animal protein in some form, but 75% of it is plants. So that, I mean, that's the most common misconception that I see constantly. Yeah. And you probably see a lot in, in your current day-to-day -day, what you do. And yeah. And well, people are always, people automatically go to, well, especially because plant-based meat, you know, is a big thing now. So people are confused there too. They think plant-based means beyond burger or impossible burger or tofu or things like that, where we're talking more broadly about, you know, fruits and vegetables and beans and like everything that's a plant. Right. So. And that's an interesting point that you bring up because I think as they continue to develop more products mm -hmm. that I think we're going to start seeing more confusion and we just go back yeah. to like the basic, like this is a plant-based diet. You know, you're not a vegetarian. Right. <laughs> so, exactly. Thank exactly. you. Anna Marie, how about you? What, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I totally echo what Abby is saying. And, and although I consider myself a, a vegan, I do get a little bit, I won't say the word annoyed, but I do try to steer people the right way when they're talking about plant-based nutrition, because it means so many different things to so many different people. But some of the more common myths that, that come across my way is, you know, the perception that persons following a plant-based nutrition plan won't meet their protein needs. But we've seen through different studies, such as the Adventist Health Study, British Oxford Study, 
that persons are able following a vegetarian diet to meet their RDA for essential amino acids. They often exceed the minimum requirement for protein. And another myth is the focus on biological value. That is an antiquated method of looking at protein. Um, this Rand et al. has illustrated there's no significant difference in protein needs. And this is associated with the source of protein that's consumed. And another myth is the complementing protein complementing myth. We don't need milk with cereal and we don't need rice with beans. The body doesn't care what is being put into it at any given time. It's a matter of specifics. Our body is able to maintain a storage pool from hours to days and it will use what it needs. The key is a, a very nice, well-balanced, diverse diet. And a red flag to a, a dietitian or a healthcare provider is an overly restrictive diet. So that, that's one of the keys that I look to when I'm talking with clients is if the meal pattern is overly restrictive, then I want to dig in a little bit more. But as, as long as someone is taking in a very nice, well-balanced nutritional intake, they're going to meet their needs. Yeah, that is so true. It's such a great point. And I really like how you highlighted the biological value. Cause mm -hmm. I remember back in the day when I was working and I in clinical more specifically, and I would chart and, and a lot of dietitians would write like encourage high BV foods. Like that was something yeah. we'd write a lot. So it, it's interesting to hear that you're saying, no, like there, this there's, there's a different approach now. And it just goes to show like everything changes, everything evolves. And it's good that we're keeping up with as dietitians, keeping up with everything in our field. You're right, Lisa, that term is, it really needs to be kind of ditched. The, the newer current term is the protein digestibility corrected amino acid score, and that's preferred by the World Health Organization. And that term biological value, it's really dated. Yes. All right, listeners, take note of that. Don't, don't use HP. <laughs> yeah, toss it. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Abby, what questions, I'm curious about this, have you received the most about plant-based nutrition? Everyone wants to know how to make plants, mostly vegetables, taste good. That's a big one. Everyone, not everyone, I shouldn't say that. A lot of people who don't enjoy vegetables or are grew up being told that they need to steam them or aren't comfortable in the kitchen and don't really know how to cook them so that they taste good. There, there's a lot of questions around that. So I'm told I'm supposed to eat kale, but I don't like it. So the answer is for me is you don't have to eat kale, but if you want to learn different ways, let's talk about different ways to make it taste good or cauliflower or Brussels sprouts or broccoli. Cause those can be very bitter, but just talking a lot about how to cook them properly so that they taste good and to use oil and to use other ingredients and you don't have to eat steamed, you know, broccoli all the time. That's a huge question. And then again, back to the plant-based meat and things, you know, just how do I have to eat that? Is that better than a burger? Is that better than a, like, why can't I eat a black bean burger? Why do I, should I be eating a, you know, alternative plant-based meat burger. So a lot of questions about that lately too. Yeah, well, I can, I can really relate to how confusing it must be. Like I try to put myself in the position of a patient or, or client. And if you're in the grocery store, there's so many products, it's overwhelming. You're like, should I yeah. be buying everything that says plant-based? Like that's kind of, like if I was yeah. not a dietitian, I, that's one of the questions I'd be asking you. 
Should I start buying yeah. anything well, that says plant-based? That made me think of something else too. I feel like a lot of people who are going dairy-free assume that it's an equal one-to-one swap. And there's a lot of confusion there too. Like they don't necessarily understand that the protein level is different or that the the vitamins are coming from supplements in the in the milk, in the plant-based milk versus cow's milk. So, and you can't just swap it out one for one for cooking. Like there's things that kind of, when you make a change from animal to plant, there's sometimes other changes that are helpful to be aware of, I guess, kind of to have the education along with it. Yeah, that's so important because you can't just assume and then they're just following kind of, a tr- not to say a trend, but yeah, a trend in a sense and thinking yeah. this is healthier, I should do this when they're, they're missing potential nutrients and other things that can happen from switching. That's a yeah. great point. Anna Marie, how about you? How about some questions that you received about plant-based nutrition? Well, since I work mainly with CKD, my questions are very different. And most of my questions have to do with mineral intake. So my questions from patients will vary from those that I receive from healthcare providers. But the bulk of my questions have to do with phosphorus and potassium. And the clinicians that I work with, they're so afraid that these minerals are going to become elevated when patients begin to use a plant-based nutrition plan, whether they're CKD before dialysis or end-stage kidney disease and on dialysis. But the fact is that phosphorus, it's not well absorbed from plant-based nutrition because it isn't a form of phytate. And we lack that enzyme phytase to break this down. So it's not readily available or bioavailable, I should say, in the gut. It must be hydrolyzed to make this more available for absorption. Um, There's additional data also by Picard et al. that illustrates that this is likely true for potassium as well, which is very exciting, especially based on the new guidelines that were put out for CKD in 2020. Regarding potassium, though, the bottom line is fiber. And with a plant-based nutrition, it's high in fiber. Fiber is the key because it increases, I should say, stool quantity, the frequency, it facilitates the potassium excretion in itself. But also too, if we really consider where patients are getting their potassium, it comes from beef, it comes from chicken, Mexican food, it comes from legumes. But if we look at that, and consider the fact that when we look at handouts that are generally provided to the patients, they're generally listing fruits and vegetables as the high potassium sources, but the high potassium sources are actually the meat, the beef, the chicken, um, the hamburgers. So it's easily to maintain those swaps as long as we're teaching patients simple fact of portion sizes, what actually is a serving. And that's the bottom line is is instruction. We need to teach patients how to cook. We need to teach patients what constitutes a serving, a swap in general. And often too, clinicians tend to forget other, other factors that surround hyperkalemia, such as wounds, starvation, uh, other medications, constipation. And there's other medications now that help with hyperkalemia, such as those once daily um, potassium binders. So those are very helpful, but the bottom line comes down to education. And this is where dietitians play a key role in instructing their patients to keep potassium homeostasis. So our job is really 
more than just a mission. It comes down to education, both on the patient level and then the healthcare provider level. Yeah, that's tremendous what you just said, all that information. And in addition- A little bit too much. <laughs> no, no, I <laughs> think so it's great. Much. <laughs> but what, what you just highlighted as well is something that, that Abby was saying, which is, goes back to is, and you said it as well many times, Anna-Marie, which is educate. Just we mm-hmm. have to continue to provide education Educate, educate, educate. I can't say it provide Correct. more education because as these new products come out, there's going to be room for. So dietitians will always have a job. <laughs> yes, this is true. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. All we right. Another secure. question I have is what is on the horizon for plant-based dietary interventions in the promotion of health? Anna Marie, do you want to start with that one? Sure. I, I read about a year ago in an article, I wish I could put my hands on it immediately, but plant-based nutrition was cited to be the fastest growing job opportunities for dietitians as the leading five opportunities. And I kind of chuckled to myself because that's basically my whole world. And it was exciting to me as well, because I, I promote plant-based nutrition for CKD as well. So to me, it just illuminated the fact that we're on definitely the right path. But people are focusing on functional medicine, improving immunity, stress reduction, and COVID brought this a little bit to the to the peak as well. But plant based foods are functional medicine. And I, I hate to use the quip so often, because so many people say it, but Hippocrates said, let food be thy medicine and medicine be thy food for a reason. It's very (laughs) distinct, but people are supporting their local community for nutrition. And I'm a master gardener. I love gardening more than I love being a dietitian. Truth be known. I, I see a great interest in people desiring to grow their own food. And this is very exciting. People are concerned about climate change as well. Plant-based nutrition leaves less of a carbon footprint. And what I also note is that people are more willing to take the middle ground. I'm using approach more or less as a flexitarian. People don't need to go completely to a vegan lifestyle or vegetarian lifestyle, even simple swaps, swapping a few uh, plant-based meals for animal-based or just increasing plant-based ingredients can make significant changes. And I think that overall, people just want really good food and just choosing locally sourced foods with convenience is important. Uh, I think clinicians truly need to focus on individual food journeys. And that's what I call a person who's desiring change. It's their own food journey. And I try to look at it in that regard. It's individualized. Um, We need to instruct patients to use food as their own purpose and look at those factors that incorporate society and health as well. Now that's great. I love when you said food journeys, because that Mm -hmm. is the most important thing. I I really don't like the word diet. It has diet in it. We've all heard that before. (laughs) I hate the word diet. (laughs) But your food journey and it's your own food journey. And the other Mm -hmm. thing that stuck out when you, I was listening to what your, your answer is flexibility and just keeping it flexible. What really works for you. And I want to hear what Abby has to say about plant-based interventions and the promotion of health. And because I know a lot of your recipes are very diverse and, and everything that you put out is catering to different, different wants and needs. So if you wanted to speak to that for a moment. So as far as plant-based dietary interventions, I think as far as consumers are concerned, it's, 
broadening. People are becoming more open to the idea. Younger people are already seem to already be open to the idea, whereas all the way up through boomers are becoming a little more open to the <laughs> idea maybe than they were before. So I do a lot of work around even things like taking a beef bolognese and replacing half the beef with lentils and like baby steps, right? Mm-hmm. So they don't have to get rid of all the beef, but let's let's manage the portion size and, and cut back and add some things and, and like work with those changes. So for me, a lot of the interventions involve creativity and cooking. So if you're working with someone, you don't tell them you can't eat this anymore. You try to figure out, well, first you, this is also why I harp on culinary nutrition and dietitians needing to know how to cook. Because if, if you're working with someone who eats foods that you're not familiar with, you need to be able to ask them how they make it, what's in it, and to understand what the food is and the cooking technique, because they might like, why would you tell them to stop eating that food? It's probably (laughs) fine. And like, that's a whole cultural competency aspect too. So I think we need to like in start involving all of that in there. And if someone eats rice and beans every day, that's fine. That's great. It's rice and beans, but what else are they eating? How is that made? What is happening there? If they have diabetes or some other disease state, how can we work with the food that's currently happening and supplement with other options to enhance what they're already doing? For example, if that makes sense. No, it makes total sense. And I'm thrilled that you mentioned creative to the creative aspect and combining it with cooking and not taking away, like if you, if somebody needs to, like, you're taking it, you're not taking it all away. So they don't feel right. like they're missing anything. And that goes back to the restriction piece that we were talking about earlier. So thank you. Yeah. Like, I think a lot of people, like our job is not to impart what we eat on other people. Our <laughs> job is to understand what they are eating and why they're eating it and help them with where they are, not just tell them to eat a smoothie. Right. So like, sure. <laughs> start where you are. Don't, you don't need to be me. <laughs> Let me yeah. eat my diet. <laughs> that is so true. Cause often you're like here, Oh, you, you, you need a high fiber diet. Here's a diet. Like follow this. Like I know you're following low fiber now go to high fiber. Like it's a, it's a huge gap. And then we wonder why people yeah. aren't listening to us. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. So working with them, meeting them halfway. I love that. Yeah. So how about we move into Abby, if you would, if you would share one story or example, showcasing your work with plant-based nutrition. And you kind of like, kind of already mentioned it. Yeah. Um, If there's any other examples that you may have. Oh God. I have a lot of examples, but let's try to think of one. Um, (laughs) So yeah, a lot of, a lot of it is obviously again, culinary. We're going to stick with that and not telling people they can't have something, but kind of adding, adding on to what they're already doing. So for example, if you have a client who eats, a sandwich every day and it's on white bread and, you know, ham and cheese and mayo or whatever, salami. I don't know. Think of things that, that, that maybe we want to pair back on. Um, But you're not going to say you can't eat that anymore. You just can't, you need to stop eating that. So maybe the option is you swap out half you know, one piece of white bread for one piece of whole wheat bread and you make baby steps across. So that's kind of what I try to do. Like, how do we make lateral shifts? So if you eat chips every day at lunch, I'm not going to tell you, you can't have them anymore. 
because then you're just going to want them. So what is like chips? It's salty and crunchy. Maybe it's pickles. Maybe it's, you know, something like that, but then start adding that to your lunch and then slowly cut back on one and keep the other, um, like in a slow movement. Like you're not saying you're changing everything tomorrow or next week. Cause no one, no one's ever going to do that. That's why long-term changes don't work. So, I mean, that's kind of an analogy or a story. <laughs> I like that. That that was terrific because you're honoring their food preferences, but moving towards a more healthful change. Right. All yeah. right. Thank you. Anna Marie, how about you? Again, we're with the CKD world, but I'm <laughs> going to give one of the best analogies that I share with clinicians when I'm doing education too. And it goes back to the same premise with phosphorus and potassium. And when I used to work with both an inner city and a very rural clinic back in my days in Texas, uh, the patients were very similar in nature. The demographics, the ethnicity, the food choices, everything was pretty similar. Their medications, even the doctor and their dietitian, myself, everything was the same. But yet the phosphorus and potassium was vastly different. So we would wonder what makes these two outcomes very distinctly different. And it was very, very easy. So in when I'm doing education, I tend to open this question to the floor and ask dietitians, what are your thoughts? What makes the difference? Why does one unit, uh, one patient population struggle and yet one doesn't? And they're doing basically the same thing. But it comes down to the source of the foods. The inner city food source was typically ready-made. They were often from fast or convenience food outlets, the taco stand on the corner, or the gas station that sold tacos or burritos after unit, they would stop there or they would get the you know snacks there. But the rural food sources were prepared fresh using whole wholesome ingredients. And also too, there was a higher focus on uh, family support. And because of this, there was this higher intensity on uh, care for the patients and monitoring of the food intake, the portions, the moderate uh, intake. So the, all of those factors came, came together, basically. The rural population had a higher level of care. They ate the same, but it was home cooked. It was wholesome food. So it, it comes back to using fresher foods, learning how to cook, and you know, portion control, ultimately. Mm-hmm. And then it sounds like, again, too, just highlighting the education component. Mm-hmm. Definitely. True. Thank you. I want to go to, back to you, Anna Marie, just to discuss one bottom line takeaway for the audience. What should they do or be aware of? I love people to be adventuresome. I love people to try new foods, try new recipes. And regarding a plant-based nutrition plan, it does not have to be restrictive. It does not have to be rigid. People need to step out of their box, just try new things. I would love to see everyone follow a whole food plant-based nutrition, but it's it's not realistic. Just even a few swaps a week or using different ingredients, as was mentioned by Abby, that makes perfect sense. And even, even those small changes make very big, significant steps in, in health and wellness. And also to using meat substitutes. I do have a word to say about that. I, I caution people to be a little bit wary of these. And while they can help in easing away from meats, they also have additives. They're typically higher in sodium, they're higher in fat. So I educate my patients or my clients 
just to check the labels. Look at those because if a food is processed, if it's not home cooked, if it is processed, then it tends to have added ingredients that our body just does not need. My favorite National Nutrition Month slogan, and I'm probably dating myself when I say this, but everything fits, everything in balance, variety, and moderation. And that's how I teach my clients. That's fantastic. Thank you, Anna Marie. You're welcome. I think it, it, it goes back to the whole thing with learning to walk and baby steps, which Abby mentioned mm-hmm. earlier with the baby steps. So Abby, how about you with your bottom line takeaway for our audience and listeners? Learn how to cook. <laughs> like I'm, harp, I'm gonna harp on it forever until I die. Like even if even if there are five things that you know how to cook, you can roast a pan of vegetables, you can make a pot of rice, like five very basic things. You can do amazing things. You can have weeks and months of food, right? So the bottom line is learn how to cook a few things that are, can be staples in your home and that other people will like, and then learn, you know, one of those things could be learning how to make a pesto or a dressing or a, a, a dip or something. And that's how you jazz everything up. You know, like it could be as easy as putting lemon juice in yogurt, <laughs> you know, like something very basic make it like can make something taste so much better just for a little, like a little bit of something, but you know, that's yeah. a little, little steps. It's yep. doable and it's easy. Yeah. The, the key word that you said, easy. Yeah. So we look at it as overwhelming, but it's really not. That's great. doesn't have to be. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Thank you. Next, we will move into our fun food question round. And mm. since it is March and today we're recording on St. Patrick's Day, I'm going to have to ask you, what is your favorite green food and why? Abby, how about yours? My favorite green food and why, and I'm like trying to have whatever comes to the top of my head is probably an avocado because I'm one of those people I like, I know I maybe I should eat kale, but I don't really want to. Um, (laughs) so I think avocado and I think I love them because, well, they taste good. They're very versatile and they have really nutritionally, they're very healthy fats and potassium and all sorts of good nutrients, but they're, uh, we eat them all the time here and they're good for every meal and every snack. We can incorporate them in some way. And my daughter and I will just eat them with a spoon out of the shell. So yes, avocados. And in Abby's course, I learned how to properly cut an avocado. So yes, thank you're you welcome. That. You're welcome. <laughs> Anna Marie, how about you? Your favorite green food and why? It sounds like our house. We eat them right out of the shell. Also, mm-hmm. I love to sprinkle paprika, a little bit of seasoning over them, a little sprinkle of lemon juice and just munch away on them. I love them. But my favorite green food is kale. Now, I love kale. I can eat kale every single day. It is a staple. If my husband says, hey, I'm stopping at the store. Is there anything you want me to pick up? Kale. I want berries and I want kale. Don't forget the kale. I love it. I stir fry it. I season it up with some Cajun seasoning, a little bit of olive oil, and I'll eat the whole pan. But I use it in soups, stews, sandwiches, salads, everything. I'm a kale freak. (laughs) (laughs) Anna Marie, you're my kale hero. (laughs) All right. Our next question. What foods must be included in any St. Patrick's Day celebration? Anna Marie, what do you think? Soda bread. Mm. <laughs> my daughter is making green soda bread as we as we sit here together we can celebrate <laughs> with soda bread how about you abby i like cabbage cabbage i like it cooked or raw i like i have some in the fridge and and uh i ha- i just remembered i need to use it 
<laughs> yeah, you need to make it today. There you go. Yeah. Celebrations I'm on. Today. Yeah. All right. I'm going to start with you for this one, Abby. What's your fun twist on the shamrock shake or your favorite shake or smoothie recipe? So I'm not a fan of smoothies unless I really uh, like I'm exercising a lot or like that's all I have time for because I feel like people try to make them meal replacements and I don't, I'm not down with it. Um, <laughs> so I will not answer my favorite smoothie recipe, but I like milkshakes. Let's see. So how about, so more specifically, <laughs> if somebody wants a shamrock shake, yeah, but but obviously what's a healthier right. version, like a healthy version of a shamrock shake. I mean, if I make a smoothie, so I usually do some kind of liquid base. I often recommend kefir because it's thin enough. It's not as thick as Greek yogurt. It's thin enough and still has healthy probiotics and good protein. And then baby spinach, super innocuous. You can't even taste it. Like I used to hide it in smoothies for my daughter when she was little, cause she wouldn't know. In this case, we want it to be green though. So we won't hide it. <laughs> so maybe a light colored fruit then in there, like banana. Um, and then for flavor, you can add in a little peanut butter or something or a little that healthy fats in there or avocado. An avocado. Yeah, it's avocado. Green, right? yep. I love it. Anna Marie, how about you? How about your if somebody's asking Ooh. for a shamrock shake and you want to, I am, else. I am not keen on shakes either. I just, they don't sit well with me, but uh, in the summer, every now and then I'll, I'll have one during the day. And I, I do make my own milks, my own plant-based milks. So I would use that as a base and I would add in probably a plant-based yogurt or kefir as well. And I would use spinach and kale, definitely. I would add some frozen fruits. So my color is going to be off. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's going to be a kind of an ugly color, but I'll try to get it as green as possible. Thank you. <laughs> well, well, thank you both for being on the show today and sharing your insights with us. We will share all your information in the show notes and resources. And to our audience, thanks for listening. And please tune in again and share your comments and feedback on our site. Have a great day and enjoy a healthier lifestyle with the 411 in mind. For more nutrition content, visit consultant360.com.